and then I'd give you a passage of scripture. We're going to do things a little bit differently over the course of the next few weeks. And typically I don't preach topical sermons. Um, Typically we pick a book of the Bible and we work through that book of the Bible. But over the next few weeks uh, we will be focusing in on a topic and I'm entitling it The State of the Church. And so that's that's what we're going to be looking at over the course of the next few weeks. The book, book of Proverbs, chapter 29, verse 18, some of you may have memorized. It says, where there is no vision, the people will perish. And a lot of times we take and misuse that verse and misapply it in various different ways and, and that sort of thing. But really, what that passage of Scripture is talking about is where there is no vision, where there is no um, directive from uh, the spokesperson of God, in particular that passage of Scripture, many believe uh, is talking about prophecy. So where there is no prophecy, then the people will will perish or they will cast off restraint. And, and the idea is that if there is no direction, if there is no proclaiming the word of God, then the people um, will will uh, perish. They will do their own thing. They will follow their own way and and uh, set their own course. It may be hard to believe, but I have now been the pastor here at First Baptist Church in Washington for over five and a half years. For some people, that may seem like a long time, while for others, that may seem like a short amount of time. The truth is, pastors generally do not stay long at churches. And that creates a problem for churches because research has consistently shown that pastors need to stay longer for a church to be healthy. And while staying longer does not guarantee a healthy church, short-term pastorates typically means a church is not healthy. In 2004, the average median tenure of a pastor was four years. In 2008, it remained the same. However, from 2012 to 2016, it jumped to six years. Let me be honest, church, I don't want to just be average. My goal was not to be uh, the average pastor of First Baptist Church, Washington. Why do I bring all this up? Well, to be honest, I'm curious this morning about how much thought you've given to the mission of First Baptist Church. You see, not long after I came here, after I became the pastor, I asked people if the church had a mission statement and if anyone knew what that mission statement was, who could tell me what the mission statement of First Baptist Church was? What is, what is it that we want to uh, accomplish? I didn't get a lot of answers. And so I set out to develop a mission statement, something that we could use to define who we were or who we are, or at least who we hope to be. And I'm curious as to whether you know our mission statement or not. A few years ago, I passionately preached through our mission statement, and I, I made a plea asking who was with me, and many people came forward at the end of that service and, and stood with me and said, Pastor, we are with you, and I was so thankful for that, but let me ask you this morning, do you know the mission of First Baptist Church? See, when I first became the pastor here, I stood up on a Sunday night, in this very spot, and I'll let anyone who wanted to ask me a question to ask me anything. It didn't matter whether it was doctrine or theological, ministry-related, whatever it might be, I said, you can ask me any questions that you want. I had questions asked about the music, questions asked about evangelism, and I still remember two specific statements I made that night before I ever became the pastor of the church. First, I made this statement. I refuse to pack up my family and move from a loving church four hours away to a church that refuses to love us. And if that was the intention, then I didn't want to come. That's one statement I made. 
The second statement I made was this. If you believe your church is going to grow because you hire a pastor, you are sadly mistaken. The pastor does not grow the church. The people grow the church. And for over five years, I've attempted to faithfully preach and teach God's word. I pray that it doesn't fall on deaf ears and that we will put it into practice. And so this morning, I wonder, do we have the right focus? When we think of focus, most companies know that they have a certain focus. They know they have a a mission statement. They know what they want to accomplish. For instance, a music company knows what their mission is, and McDonald's knows what their mission is, and Domino's Pizza knows what their mission is, and the quarterback of the team knows what his mission is. And I find it amazing that so many companies and individuals know exactly what they need to do. They know exactly how they need to do it. But the church has a tough time with knowing what it is supposed to do or even how to accomplish what it is that they want to do. In fact, if we were to ask people, what is the fundamental mission of the church? Many would not be able to give a solid answer. In fact, if we did a survey today and I said to you, what is the fundamental mission of the church? We would get different answers. Some would probably say that the mission of the church comes from the great commission that Jesus gave to his disciples. When he said, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. Matthew 28, 18-20. Some people would say that is the mission of the church. Still others might say, no, the miss- mission of the church is to equip the saints of Christ to carry out the Great Commission. And so there's confusion on what the mission is. And there's confusion on how to accomplish the mission, even when the mission is clear. So what exactly is it that keeps us from accomplishing the mission? What keeps a church from accomplishing a mission? Well, I believe there are are several things that keep churches from accomplishing what they're supposed to do. I've narrowed it down to three. Number one, following a false mission. Following a false mission. So what do I mean by following a false mission? Well, this is following any mission that's not biblical in its framework. So sometimes the church may think um, something like, well, we want to be the coolest church in our city. When our people see our church, we want them to think, wow, that church is cool, or that church is hip, or that church has cool stuff, or whatever. And so that becomes their mission. And so they look at everything they do through the lens of wanting to be cool or to appeal to those that would find them to be cool. And so so suddenly they say, okay, well, everything that we do has to have this idea like we got we to gotta be cool. We want people to know that we're cool. And now, as you can clearly tell, that's the way I do things. I like us to be cool. No, that's not really how I, I'm probably the opposite of cool. I'm not one of the coolest dudes around, that's for sure. Let me give you one more example. Some churches make it their mission to become inward-focused. And so the way this looks is they, they spend the bulk of their budget and their money on things that are focused inwardly on the church instead of outwardly reaching people. And so these churches are more concerned with how the people in the church feel they are, uh, how, how, does, how does our membership feel? And they're more concerned with that than they are with reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is what we call the us for and no more mentality. They're content with being a country club. And so following a false mission derails us from accomplishing the mission. And that leads me into my second one. Number two trying to get people to buy into a slogan or neat statement 
rather than having a genuine walk with Christ. Or doing nothing to reach the loss outside the walls of the church. So, listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with slogans. There's nothing wrong with, with mission statements. We have one, and we're going to go over it. But, but these things, apart from a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ, are absolutely useless. Because the church has lost its focus. The church is in a state of decline to the point that there are many churches that are on the verge of closing their doors. If the church does not rediscover the biblical model that Jesus gave to the church, it could lead to an end of church as we know it. And even when we know what we're supposed to do, we have a hard time staying focused because there's all kinds of distractions, right? Every time I turn around, there's, there's something new to try. There's a new distraction there's the next great thing that's going to bring all kinds of people in your church. And sometimes these things aren't inherently bad, but so often they serve to distract us. I mean, I can, I can go through a list after a list of the things churches try to do to grow. I mean, we had the, uh, the prayer of Jabez. Any of you remember that? It was like the lucky rabbit's foot for the church. Just, just say this prayer and just get your people to buy into this and read this little prayer of Jabez's book. And if we do that, the church will grow. Before that, we had experiencing God. Find where God is working and join God in his work and the church will grow. We had 40 days of purpose. If you just go through 40 days of purpose, then, boy, your church is going to be bursting at the seams. You won't even be able to, you won't even know what to do with all these people. We had uh, Jim Cimbala's book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. If you just go through this and, and your people just know how to pray right, then your church will grow. And there's so much stuff out there. We could spend years going through it all, and I'm not saying that there's anything bad with these things. Some churches have used them and experienced tremendous growth, but there is no magic bullet. It's not about another method. It's not about, oh, well, we just, we just got to keep trying method after method after method until we find a good one. It's about following what God has laid out in his word and staying to it. The third reason, the third thing that derails us from our mission is this. We often want to do what we want instead of what God wants. And that's part of being inward focused. So often in church life, we want things the way we want them. We struggle so often to see things a different set of eyes. For example, we struggle with coming to church and trying to view things as if we're a first-time visitor. Have you ever just tried to do that? Like, I'm going to go to church. I know I've been coming here for 150 years. That's a joke. The church isn't that old. But um, but you, you've been coming here so so long. Have you ever just tried to come and pretend like you've never been here before? ever like put it in your gps just pretend like you just moved here and okay i'm i'm gonna go to first baptist church for the first time and you put it in your gps and you let your gps guide you here and then as you come ask yourself well what do i think what do i think of the parking what do i think of the building what do i think of how i get into the church what do i think of the people what do i think of how they treat me just pretend like you've never been here before we we struggle with that because we know where everything is. We know where everything's located. But someone that's never been here before may not know where to park. I mean, it's kind of weird. Really, you've got to... Here's our church, but then you've got to park out back. And it makes no sense, but that's... It's kind of weird. They may not know where the bathroom is. Believe it or not, there's been people that have been coming to our church for a few weeks before they even knew where the children's area was at. And they had children. 
There's people that don't even know we're a church. You see, we get trapped in our own way of thinking, and we struggle to think outside of it. And we think, well, we have done this, this for so long this way that we don't need to change it. Or the church has looked this way for a long time. Why would we want to change it now? Or I'm comfortable doing it this way. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't want to do something different. And we get so focused on what we want instead of asking ourselves, what does God want? And so when I became the pastor, what I wanted to do was to come up with this three-level mission statement that I believe results in a huge impact. My thoughts were focused on the mission statement. Make sure that we know the mission statement. Try to implement the mission statement into what we do as a church. And I wanted to keep the statement in front of us as much as possible. That's why it's printed in our bulletin. It's why I try to do a refresher series on our mission statement ever so often so we know what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So we don't lose sight. It's stated like this, First Baptist Church exists to glorify Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, to grow in him, and to show him to others. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at this statement But then after that, my desire is that we will spend some time asking ourselves, what is it that we need to do in order to revitalize our church and move forward beyond where we are currently at? Because there are only two kinds of churches, people. Just two. Living churches and churches that are dead or dying. And that's it. And we need to force ourselves to ask our to ask that question which are we which are we are we living or are we dead and dying so here's how the mission statement relates to us and how we need to live for Jesus first of all we need to realize that we must have the right focus and so that's what we want to look at this morning focus Number one, we want to focus on knowing him. Our mission in this life and in this church begins with knowing Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. That I may know him, speaking of Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. The word for know is a word for intimacy. It's the same root word used in Genesis where Adam knew Eve. Paul's great pursuit in life was to know Christ. Not just some superficial knowledge of Christ either, but to be fully acquainted with Christ. In Christ, we may experience freedom and deliverance from the power of sin. We can have confidence in Christ's work on the cross. We will receive an inheritance in God's kingdom because of Christ. Paul's deepest desire was to come to know Christ in this life-shaping way. And there are two theological ideas that Paul is speaking of when he says, says that he wants to know Christ. They are this, the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And so, when Paul's speaking of the power of his resurrection and suffering, what he is saying is that Christ subjected his flesh to God's will and died for the sins of man, and Paul wants to know Christ in that way. Paul wants to know Christ so intimately that he subjects himself totally to God and that his flesh dies, meaning that his desire is no longer his desire. He wants to know Christ so intimately that Paul's desires are replaced with the Lord's desires. Do you want to know Christ like that? That the desires of Christ are replaced with your desires? Listen, Christian, to to know the Lord this way means that we deny ourselves, right? We take up our cross daily, Luke 9, 23. 
It means that we crucify our old self with Christ, Romans 6.6. 6. It means we count ourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ, Romans 6.11. It means that we die to ourselves every single day, 1 Corinthians 15.31. It means that we are crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Please understand that our focus on knowing Him is not just about some sort of head knowledge of, oh yeah, I know Jesus. But it's to be a life-changing, life-altering knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Now, there's a difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. Think of all the people we know about, but we don't really know them. We know about a lot of people. Right? I mean, we know, we know about people. I'm, I, I like to watch sports and and uh, I know about the Dallas Cowboys because that's my team. I don't know them. I'm not like buddies with them. I can't call up the quarterback, Dak Prescott, and say, hey, Dak, what's up, buddy? Let me tell you what to do in this, this game. That's it. That, I don't know him. I know about him. He would he'd be mad at me anyway because I always say he can't throw the long ball. So he would be upset with me. But... If you could meet one person on this planet, if you could get to know one person, who would it be and why? Think about that. Now, here's the logical question, okay? I mean, we could think of all kinds of people that we would want to get to know. We, we, we can think of a lot of people, maybe some hero or something like that. But here's a logical question. Do you want to get to know Jesus like you want to get to know that person? I mean, knowing Jesus is a big deal because it determines if he knows us or not. So what do you mean? Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. How often have you seen a Christian act like he or she doesn't know who God is? You know, they say they know Christ, but their life is far from him. Constantly giving in to the desires of the flesh and living as if God doesn't really exist. How do we, how, how do we acknowledge Jesus before men? How are you acknowledging Jesus before men? Do you really know him? You see, we say we know him, but do you really know him? Some would say that we, 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 uh, that what we do simply by being a good person is acknowledging Christ. But that's just not the case. That's not what confession means. He says, confess me before men. Those that confess me before men. Confession doesn't mean, oh, I just, it's just this nice little life. We confess Jesus not by our li- just by our lives, but by our lips. lips. We, we confess him through our obedience to him. And part of that obedience is through sharing him with others as he has commanded us to do. This is, this is what we have to understand. It's not enough to simply say that you know Jesus. You've got to have proof that you know him. There are a lot of people that say they know Jesus, but their life simply says otherwise. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. We know that we've come to know him if... Right? So somebody says, I know Jesus. And 1 John says, well, you know that you've come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him. So now John turns the tide and says, The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. Is a liar about what? He's a liar about saying he knows Jesus. He says he knows him, but he doesn't do his commands. Therefore, he's a liar. He doesn't really know him. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. So John says, if you know him, 
you obey his commands. You have this desire to live as Jesus lived. Now, I don't know about you, but that seems like pretty strong language. But the point's clear. You prove you know Jesus by living as Jesus lived. And so I want to ask you an honest question this morning. Is there evidence in your life right now that would make those close to you think that you don't know Jesus? What I'm asking you is this. If, if you were on trial for being a Christian, this is the way I've heard it put, if you are on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? You know, in Philippians 3, 9, the apostle starts off with this, and be found in him. The time is coming where you will have to be found somewhere. When God comes to find you, where will you be found? Will you be found surrounded by your own goodness or in the completed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he paid for on the cross with his tears and his blood and can be yours today if you put your trust in him? Will you be found in the righteousness of Christ or doing your own thing? I pray that when we are found, we are found with the righteousness of Christ on our soul. Part of our mission is very simply this. We want to call people to know him and not just just this superficial knowledge of, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is, but we want to call people as a church to a life-changing, life-altering knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And if we're not doing that, if we have no desire to do that, then quite honestly, I don't want to be here. That has to be our focus. We focus on on calling people to know him. Secondly, we focus on growing in him. Focus on growing in him. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, we read, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And then we fast forward towards the end of Matthew, and we read in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The point from Matthew 4.19 is that the call to follow Jesus is is an immediate, immediate call. They must immediately follow and to personally attach themselves to Christ before you do anything else. It's a call to a personal relationship. The call is twofold. It is to follow me. And as you're following me, he says, I will make you. He didn't say you're going to become. He says, I will make you fishers of men. In other words, you're following me. Everything that you know will change. They're going to be transformed. These people are regular fishermen. They're going to be transformed from regular fishermen to fishing for men. He says what you know is going to be radically and totally different. When we talk about growing in Christ, we could perhaps talk about many things. And maybe use many standards to measure someone's growth in Christ. But I really believe growing in Christ is connected with us following Christ. And let me just be totally honest. Following Christ is not easy. I like what the theologian G.K. Chesterton said. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. What Chesterson was saying is that for many people, they look at the fact that the Christian life is indeed a difficult one, and therefore they say, that's not for me. And it's perhaps for that reason why we've tried to dumb down Christianity, and make it look like there's no commitment ever involved, 
no commitment required to be a follower of Christ. However, that's simply not true. Jesus made it clear at what it takes to be a follower of Christ. He says, if someone wants to be my disciple, there's some requirements. He told his disciples and he tells us that to follow him involves at least two aspects. One, self-denial, and two, a cross. John Wesley said this about self-denial and cross-bearing. The denying ourselves and taking up a cross in the full extent of the expression is not a thing of small concern. It's not expedient only uh, as are some of the circumstantials of religion, but it is absolutely indispensably necessary either to our becoming or continuing to be his disciples. It is absolutely necessary in the very nature of the thing to our coming after him and following him insomuch that as far as we do not practice it, we are not his disciples. John Wesley says, you don't take up your cross, you're not really his disciple. If we do not continually deny ourselves, then we don't learn of him, but we learn of other masters. If we don't take up our cross daily, we don't come after him, but we come after the world, or the prince of the world, or our own fleshly mind. If we're not walking in the way of the cross, then we're not following Jesus. We're not treading in his steps. But we're going back from them, or at least wide of him. You see, the natural tendency of man is not self-denial. This is not. You know what our natural tendency is? To affirm ourselves. To concentrate on what serves us best. To think about how we can make the most money. Or think about how, uh, what, what will be the, the best benefit to our desires. And there's all kinds of distractions out there, right? All kinds of other things that we can, we can follow besides Jesus Christ. We can follow sports and money and fame and family and girlfriends, boyfriends, spouses, music, Twitter accounts, Facebook accounts, cell phones, TV shows follow all those things and here's the heart of the problem so many of us so many people that call themselves Christian are following everything but Jesus yet we run around saying how Christian we are I want you to think about this statement this morning if you can't give it up You don't own it. It owns you. We act like we could give things up at any time. But the truth is, we can't. And the truth is, we're devoted to so many other things that are not Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I'm looking for the utmost in self-denial. And we we say things like, oh, we all have our cross to bear. And (coughs) that sort of thing. And it sounds nice. try to minimize this statement, but Jesus was not talking about some sort of minor discomfort in your life. Everyone knew that bearing the cross was a prelude to death. Jesus is telling us we must die to selfishness and die to self-seeking and be alive to selflessness. Jesus did not say this was going to be an easy road. He did not say it would be a cakewalk and everyone is going to love you and and you're going to have so many friends. In fact, Jesus said the world hated me and they're going to hate you too. The world will hate you when you stand for Jesus. Why? Because it's foolishness to them. And that forces us to ask ourselves a question. If the world loves me, then why? Is it because you don't love Jesus? Listen, the call of Christ is not for us to die to atone for our sins. Jesus has already done that. The call is to live for others every single day. That is why he gives us these three present tense commands, right? He says, deny yourself. Present tense, deny yourself. We're not our own. We've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Calvin said this, 
Self-denial erases from our minds the yearning to possess, the desire for power, and the favor of men. He also said self-denial uproots ambition and all cravings for human glory and other more secret plagues. The Christian feels within himself it is with God he has to deal throughout his life. For he who has learned to look to God in all things avoids all vain things. And so first, we deny ourselves. Second, he says, take up your cross, present tense. So deny yourself, take up your cross. Call to action, not to passively suffer. We bear the cross by, by comforting the afflicted. Say, well, how do I bear my cross? You comfort the afflicted. You care for the sick. You give to the poor. You share Christ with those who despise the messenger, which is you sharing Christ. To bear the cross is to face the loss of anything that's precious to you. That is bearing your cross, facing the loss of those things that are precious to you, whether it's money or comfort or time or relationships or health. If you're a busy person and you rarely have time to rest and you go and help a brother or sister during your free time, you're bearing your cross. You're giving up something that's precious to you. This is important because we have a natural inclination to avoid Sacrifice. We say, oh, well, 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 we thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you died in my, in my place. But when we're asked to sacrifice what is precious to us, we recoil. Yet Jesus makes it clear there is no Christianity without a cross. And thirdly, present tense, he says, follow me. It deals with the self-denial and the cross-bearing. In other words, if you want to follow Jesus, you must do the first two. In other words, the gauge of whether you are really following Jesus is seen on whether you are denying yourself and taking up your cross. What have you given up in order to follow Jesus? See, our church has to focus on calling people to know Jesus. Not this superficial knowledge, but a life-changing, life-altering knowledge of Jesus. We have to focus on growing in Jesus. That means that, that you're going to give stuff up. You're going to follow after Jesus. That means that Jesus becomes everything to you. That means that, that we believe to be a, a member of this church, to be a part of this church, that, that that is what defines your life, that you are growing, that you are willing and sacrificially giving up everything or willing to give up everything in order to follow Jesus, in order to make Jesus famous in our world. We have to focus on those things. We can't call anyone to follow him if we are refusing to follow him. Thirdly, we focus on showing him to others. <clears throat> focus on showing him to others. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make, all, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I found it's tempting, especially in America, to become an undercover Christian. We come to this knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? And we get all excited about it. Maybe early on in our faith walk, we're so excited. We cannot believe what Jesus has done for us. We can't believe that he would, he would seek out a filthy wretch like me and that he would save me and that he would pay the price for my sin on the cross and we are excited about our faith in Jesus Christ and we, man, we are ready to go and perhaps we call up our family and we call up our friends and, and, and we're telling everybody we know because we are so excited about our faith but do you know what happens, right? The rejection starts to come. Well, you're silly. 
Why are you doing that? You ever bought something and had buyer's regret, right? You spend your money and then you go, why did I do that? I knew I shouldn't have been watching that TV ad. I knew it was too good to be true, right? I mean, I've done that. It looks so awesome and you buy it and then you get it and you're like, what a piece of junk. And that's, that's sometimes the way it happens. We get so excited about our salvation and we are ready to go. We're ready to charge hell with a water pistol, man. We want everybody to know. And we stop. Quit sharing. We think, well, at least I'm saved. Guess I'll just cruise on into eternity. But Christ wants us to be vocal about the impact that He's made on our lives. You're not saved just to come to church. He wants, to t- wants us to tell others so that they can come to know Him, so that they can grow in Him, so they then, in turn, can show Him to others. You say, well, it, it's so hard to witness. But the reality is we make it so much harder than it is. In the latest polls, it was found that 61% of evangelical Christians don't share their faith. I'd venture to guess that the number is actually a lot higher than that. But it's not really that hard. I've tried to equip us to be able to to share our faith a little easier. Talking from the pulpit about sharing our faith. Different ways that we can share our faith. We've offered evangelism training through the Illinois Baptist State Association on more than one occasion. But just in case you've forgotten, let me give you some easy ways to share your faith. First, know your story. It's so simple to be able to share your story. Be able to share it in three minutes or less. You don't need to be like, well, I was born and uh, as a baby. We don't need like a 45-minute story. Three minutes or less. This This was my life before Christ. This is how I came to Christ. This is how Christ changed my life. Just know your story. Share it with people and ask them, hey, is it okay if I share with you my story? Secondly, you can use the form method of taking you through it before. Let me tell you what it is again. It's easy to remember. Family. Talk about someone's family. You engage in conversation, talk with them about their family. Are you married? You have kids? Blah, blah, blah. Family. Second, occupation. Where do you work? Do you enjoy your job? What do you like to do? Occupation. Third, religious background. Do you have any religious background? Go to church anywhere? For message or my story. Take him to the message. We have tracks down in my office. You can come and say, Pastor, can I see some of those tracks and give you tracks? There's there's little booklets that we have uh, downstairs called Life on Mission. There's an app literally called the Life on Mission app. You can download it onto your Android phone or your smartphone so you never have any reason not to know how to share the gospel. It literally walks you through how to share the gospel with someone right on your smartphone where you start with with the fact that God created the world perfect and then you lead into the world is broken because of sin in the world and then you lead into the fact that Jesus paid the price so you give them the gospel message and it tells you, walks you through exactly what to say. You you can just show it to people and say, what do you think about this? Three circles. You can give them a small book. Ask them if they'll read it. Let you know what they think. And get back with them. Those are all easy. We make it harder than what it is. I don't know why we're afraid of being rejected by somebody that doesn't know you. 
I'm going to ask you all a question this morning. I want you to answer it in your head. When was the last time you actually shared your faith with someone? I don't want to know when the last time you invited someone to church is. That's great. If you invite people to church, I want you to invite people to church. When was the last time you actually shared your faith with someone? I mean, you, we have this faith, right? We, we say that we believe in Jesus Christ. We say that we, we believe that he's made a difference in our life. We say that we have this awesome thing that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. And we're going to live forevermore. We say that we have this. When's the last time you actually shared that with anyone? That you actually, that, and I don't mean like, oh, I'm a Baptist. Or, oh, I'm, I believe in Jesus. I mean you've actually walked through someone through your faith. I believe in Jesus. This is why I believe in Jesus. This is why you need to believe in Jesus too. This is why you need to place your faith in him. I mean, we say that's our mission statement. And we could do that corporately, but are you doing that individually? Because I'll take you right back to the first thing I ever shared with you. This church will not grow because of me. It has to be because of you. So when's the last time you actually shared your faith with someone? Number four. We focus on glorifying him. I know you've heard this numerous times from me, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. As believers, everything we do is to be done for the glory of God. Our concern is not with what makes us happy. Our concern is not with what our rights are. Our concern is with the glory of God. Whatever, whatever will glorify God is to be what we want most in our life. So our eating and our drinking... And our socializing, they're all to be done for His glory. That we glorify God in them. Not only that, but God is the source and the means and the end of all things. And therefore, God is to be glorified forever. All things exist by God's sovereign power and through His power. And He is to be glorified forever because of it. And so the result of the mission to know, grow, and show Jesus is that God is glorified. In other words, the Lord is lifted up to the place that he deserves. He deserves to be known. He deserves for us to grow in him. He deserves to be shown to others. This is all done for him and for his glory so that he will be glorified in us and in his church. Now here's the ultimate question. How will this impact our church? One, quickly, one, priority. Knowing the mission should lead to priority of the mission. We essentially should be asking ourselves about everything we do as a church, whether it fits our mission or not. If it doesn't, then why are we doing it? We should be saying, does this fit? What, we're, what we want to do as a church? Are we, are we glorifying Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, show him, uh, grow in him, and show him to others? If it's not doing it, then why are we doing it? We either need to modify that thing so it fits the mission, or we need to not do it. By knowing the mission, we will know what we need to do. Instead of getting sidetracked by the latest church model or the next big thing, we will remain focused and saying, this is our mission, this is our priority. Number two, it results in purity. When I say purity, I mean by knowing the mission, we can avoid running off to other things, and it helps us avoid false doctrine as well. 
Instead of getting run over spiritually by temptation, we will stay true to the Father. We will understand this call is to, is to uh, follow the biblical mandate, not some man-made solution to all of our problems, because Jesus is the solution. Thirdly, it results in peace. By knowing the mission, it should bring peace. I understand not everyone may like the mission. Some may not want to be part of the mission. But knowing the mission avoids anxiety and being troubled because we're all confused about what we're supposed to be doing. Instead, we can live with assurance and confidence saying this is our mission and we will press on. Number four results in prayer. Knowing the mission will help us focus our prayer time on those that we know need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you pray for the lost? Are you focused on prayer for the lost? I mean, I, I get like we, we have an organ recital all the time when we're praying for people because, you know, they're, they're all their organs and all the problems that are with that, and there's nothing wrong with praying for those things. But are you praying for the lost? People don't know Jesus. Are you praying for that? We spend a great deal of time praying for people that already know Jesus and trying to pray them out of heaven, it seems. But are you praying for those that don't even know Jesus? Are you praying for those that you know need to grow in Christ? Are you praying for those that are faithfully sharing the gospel? Are you praying for yourself to share the gospel? In other words, our mission should help us, instead of, of, of talking to ourselves about all the problems and talking to other people, well, did you hear what pastor said or did you hear what so-and-so did? Instead of doing that, it should help you talk to God first. Prayer, number five, power. Knowing the mission brings power. When we're all working towards a common goal together, instead of trying to find strength in our own ability, we will trust God for his complete faithfulness. The result will be powerful. Listen, if we refuse to get on board and instead stay satisfied where we are, then we're going to be in for a rude awakening. We can't be satisfied. Do you want to see the power of God in your church? And you must do something about it. So really, I have one question for you, church. Are you on his mission? I'm not asking you to buy into my mission. Are you on his mission? Because I believe what I've outlined is not my mission. But it's the biblical mandate given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, sure, I put words to it to help us remember it better. But it's his mission. And that's why I wanted to make sure that our mission was biblical. And so are you glorifying Jesus Christ by calling people to know him, to grow in him, and to share him with others? Our focus as a church must be on this mission. Will you follow me as I try to lead us to be on mission for him? Or are you just going to be satisfied to just keep doing what we've been doing? I don't know if you've noticed, but it's not working. Will you be on mission? Let's close a prayer.